This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. say whether we're full of energy in the morning or at night is dictated by our own internal clocks. Meaning if you are a night owl, which research shows about half of us are, that's set by genetics, not by choice. But if you're someone that finds themselves awake right now, even though you're not a night owl, Consider this your lucky day, because for the next hour, you are about to go on a wild voyage where we will explore the skies, the stars, the moons, other galaxies, and our own galaxy, all through the watchful eye and the soothing voice of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer who is our go-to man when it comes to astronomy and space. He's also a terrific podcaster with the Dr. Sky Experience, which you can listen to at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And I want to say a special hello to people listening to the other side of midnight for the first time in the area of Detroit, Michigan. want to give a big welcome, a big hello to our growing network of stations, to the folks listening on AM 910, the superstation WFDF in Detroit, honored uh, to be on this station, and I hope you guys like The Other Side of Midnight as much as people in other markets do, but I know you're going to like Dr. Sky as much as I do. Steve, it's great to talk to you. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be going infinite, and welcome to the new stations around the country as your show expands. And just a little side note on this radio station, WFDF. It's interesting to note, I don't know if you know this, but the actual call letters me and the gentleman who actually found it, Frank D. Fallon. So there you go, WFDF, his original initials, another of the great century, older than a century radio station. Uh, 101 so, years awesome. old and still going strong. So uh, I absolutely awesome. love it. Hey, by the way, we are going to take calls for Dr. Sky throughout the hour. So if you have questions about space or the sky or anything that involves looking up, give us a call this hour, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, let me ask you about an issue that uh, seemed to hypnotize everybody mm-hmm. last week. I actually had a difficult time driving into work last week because I couldn't stop looking up towards the sky. The blue supermoon, which my wife was a little disappointed, wasn't that blue. Uh, What was your take on the supermoon? How did this compare? I mean, people aren't going to see another one until 2034, I think. But how did this compare to previous supermoons? Well, obviously, the namesake of supermoon means that it's much brighter and larger in the sky. And from my perspective here in Phoenix, Arizona, in the state of Arizona, and probably the many people listening across the nation and around the world, just a very spectacular moon. 
And we consider that, though that not is truly an astronomical term, not to split hairs, but a blue moon, there's a lot of controversy on this. The second full moon of a calendar month simply has been referred to as a blue moon, though the moon doesn't look blue in the sky. Sometimes it's referred to as the number of moons in a season that occur. But with all that said, Frank, and to all those listening, it was just so beautiful from the romantic side. The most amazing thing we did, we were up in Sedona doing one of our Dr. Sky programs. And lo and behold, I prepared, like anybody could, the rising time of the moon. We took a telescope and knew the exact location it was rising. And how about that? Looking at the moon 200 times what your eye can see, that's an amazing sight as it rises over cacti and all of these different you know, artifacts in the Arizona desert. But Frank, from everywhere, just a spectacular moon. And it also has a little sad note to be associated with this particular moon. In the last iteration of the hurricane that just swept through the Gulf of Mexico up into California, I mean, up into Florida, excuse me, we find out that that perigean tide wasn't really anything that people wanted. It just simply increased the tides as that particular storm rapidly swept through that area of the Gulf and up into that uh, part of uh, Florida. So we hope those folks are recovering and uh, that the damage will be repaired soon. But the moon does have, as we all know, a great effect on our tides, and those were even bigger and much more powerful. So the supermoon actually made the storm worse? Well, it did. I mean, what happens, just so people understand the definition of supermoon, it's the coincidence of the moon when it's at perigee, meaning the closest to the Earth, and the coincidence of when that particular moon is actually full. So if you look at the moon to be totally full, it has to be 180 degrees, literally, away from the sun. So in, the, in the, you know, the naked eye view, you'll see a few days the moon still looks full, but upon further inspection, it tells you it has to be like 180. So when that moon is exactly 180 degrees away from the sun and the coincidence of its closest time to the Earth, those two things that were only within 10 hours or less, we thus get the you know, potential for even higher tides, which definitely was seen and exhibited here in those low coastal areas of Florida. Speaking of the moon, we were speaking about India becoming the fourth nation to land on the moon last week. Uh, How significant is this? And is India becoming a new leader in space exploration? Apparently, they're able to get some of these moon landings done at a much cheaper rate than what the United States, China, maybe even Russia is able to do in terms of lunar exploration. Well, yes, Frank, and the Indian nation should be congratulated uh, far and wide. The success of Chandrayaan-3, the first spacecraft to soft land near the South Pole region of the moon. Now, it's not exactly, so we don't split hairs, not exactly if you looked at the exact position of the South Pole. But it landed on a plateau area, for those of you out there that have lunar maps and want to look at the location. It landed on a lunar plateau between a crater called Manzias and Bogolowski. Again, all these lunar craters named after famous scientists and all different individuals who did something great in space and, of course, added to our knowledge of the heavens. But the spacecraft, as I mentioned before, India should be very much congratulated because their previous spacecraft, the Chandrayaan-2, was not a success. It crashed into the moon. That's what we think. And the serious one was the rather interesting revelation by the Russians of their you know, attempt to soft land on the moon since the Luna 24 back in 1976. Luna 25, sadly, though many people I've talked to, they said it simply this way. 
Well, upon descent, the engines were supposed to run for an amount of time in seconds. And what happened is the the engines ran longer than the time it was supposed to. So apparently what would have happened there, excuse me, is that it would have literally slammed into the wound. Mm. But here in Arizona, we should be really proud because one spacecraft that's monitored by Arizona State University, and we know these folks very well, is the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And guess what it did, Frank? It actually found the location of where Luna 25 crashed into the moon. And they can see this from their spacecraft, like the size of a small SUV that's imaging maybe upwards of 20 miles above the moon. They found what looks like a 10-meter crater, so they found it. But back to the Indian nation. They should be very proud of this particular attempt because right now we're finding out that this particular spacecraft is now in what's considered to be like a, a dormant mode right now. It's in a sleep mode. It's landed. It's obviously sent its little rover out onto the surface. And what's even more interesting here, they fired up their engines on this Chandrayaan-3, the main primary spacecraft, and they actually moved it about 12 inches from its original landing position just to know that all is well with its ascent motor. So it's going well. The little Pragrayan, excuse me, rover, which translates to wisdom in Hindi, and the Vikram, the lander itself, which obviously trans, trans, uh, actually translates into valor, they're doing very well on the surface of the moon. So in simplest uh, way we can say it, congratulations to the Indian nation. They've done something other than China, which did an even more amazing thing, but the Indians, again, congratulated for the third, third time here. The Chinese in 2019, they soft-landed a probe on the far side of the moon, which is even more incredible. But the difficulty, Frank, quickly, is that landing in the south pole of the moon area, it's one of the coldest places in the entire solar system. It's very difficult to get to. And again, the Indian nation did it. So there you go. Amazing story. Is there is there now going to be a plan to have an Indian manned trip to the moon like we did with the Apollo missions and like the United States is talking about doing again? Is that uh, is that in the offing? Well, I'm not sure. And when I don't know something, I'll tell you. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine so that they're going to be doing this because China's very aggressive in wanting to do this. We, of course, with our Artemis program, hopefully Artemis three, they're saying maybe as early as 2025, we'll bring humans back to the moon. But with the Indians themselves, I think that's on the drawing board. But there's still a big difference between these two types of missions. What this particular spacecraft is doing, it's actually trying to do some serious science and sampling material on the surface of the moon running around as a predecessor to even larger vehicles that would get to the surface of the moon. And in that case, they may be taking small generators, power stations, you know, small habitation modules and things like that that you have to set up way ahead of doing a manned landing because it's not like the old days when you just had a small spacecraft to send to the moon, the Apollo era. They want to obviously stay for a longer duration. And let's remember one thing, as everybody listens to the infinite side of midnight here, A day on the surface of the moon is 14 Earth days long. So when you go to the surface of the moon, you want to make sure that you're shielded from the high heat of what I would consider to be the noontime sun on the moon, where temperatures can get upwards of about 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's one of the reasons that they're looking to go to the polar regions, because they would stay pretty much almost permanently in darkness. And you could set up on the mountaintops where the sunlight is there some power stations. So you're getting the best of the both worlds. But imagine that, Frank, a day on the surface of the moon would be 14 Earth days long. 
as you see every day, as we do, the sun rising in the east or there's a, <laughs> thereabouts, and it traverses the sky in a period of what, 9 to 12 or 14 hours, depending on the season. You would watch the sun slowly creep across the lunar sky as if a day, which we call a day like on Earth, is pretty quick. It would take 14 lunar days or 14 Earth days, excuse me, to get that sun to cross the lunar sky. So a lot different environment on an object only a quarter million miles away. The the um, Axios had an interesting article about the moon, and uh, in it, a NASA moon scientist by the name of Noah Petro said, we're living in a lunar renaissance. And apparently there is now, there's a more nations aiming for the lunar surface in addition to the countries we've been talking about. Japan is also planning to launch a robotic mission to the to the moon. And there's now a booming effort to establish industry beyond Earth. I'm wondering if you can speak to that, Steve. I know a lot of people think of traveling to the moon as a great scientific exploration, a great way to go to the final frontier and to scratch our creative and curious itch about what's out there. But there's also some very sound financial reasons that either businesses or governments might want to go to the moon, right? Absolutely. And there's profiteers and people out there that want to profit from the moon. And here's how they would do it. A long time ago, one of the last astronauts to walk on the moon, Dr. Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist, by the way, to go to the moon on Apollo 17, he proposed a long time ago a fuel source, which I've talked about here on your program before, called the isotope of helium-3. Now, what is that? In the lunar dust, because the surface of the moon is getting baked by sunlight, and since the moon doesn't have the atmosphere that we so much depend on on the Earth, these particular protons from the sun are churning up stuff in the lunar material. So what you could do is harvest this isotope called helium-3, which could be a fuel source. So that might be one of the sources of you know, regenerating fuel on the surface of the moon. There's also the ability to actually generate water on the surface of the moon through various technologies which involve oxygen, and actually trying to get oxygen out of some of the surface components on the moon. It's a little complicated. It takes a lot of money. And obviously, you have to set up a moon base to be able to do all this. But I think right now, you're looking at this whole opportunity. It's not just to plant a flag and say, hey, we did it, which is great. You know, we've done it. Other nations have not sent humans there. But the point is, there is a lot of money to be made on the surface of the moon as far as mining the moon. There's so many other things that we can do there. And I think in the near future, when I say near future, we're talking in astronomical terms, maybe within the next 25 or so, a decade, you know, not a decade, but a generation, we should obviously see some real progress. So one day, people will be going there. Imagine mining companies setting up permanent stations there to create these different isotopes and actually creating and generating fuel for a waypoint between here and the planet Mars as we move out to the solar system. All very promising but all much on the profiteering side. I would imagine there'll be the first trillionaire made here on this planet, well beyond what Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have accumulated as far as wealth through hard work, as we mine asteroids and we go out to uh, learn to explore the resources that are right there out in the solar system. Very interesting. 800-848-9222. A lot of people eager to chat with you. I have a lot of questions for you as well. Let us begin with Eddie in Nassau. Hello, Eddie. 
Yes, good morning, Frank and Dr. Uh, Scott. Just one question. I understand that a spacecraft landed on the moon and it had a sound sensor that uh, fired a uh, sound impulse into the crust of the moon and they, it said mm-hmm. it had an echo effect and that the moon actually resonated for a few hours, like, almost like a bell, leading them yes. to believe that the, maybe the uh, moon was hollow. Do you know anything about that? Thank you. Well, sure. I'm not sure of the exact spacecraft that did this. We, the early Apollo missions, did similar things to check for what we call moonquakes. And there are actually moonquakes under the surface of the moon. But what you're saying, Eddie, is actually correct. These particular quakes have different waves. We call them in the geology world like P waves. But on the surface of the moon, there's different ways that those you know, resonate. So what it indicates, one, I don't believe that the moon is totally hollow, but there's a differential on the moon that's not seen here on the Earth. And what's that? It's a thing called lunar, folks can look this up, lunar mass cons. What the heck is that? When the Apollo astronaut who sat in the command module and never got to walk on the moon, let's take Michael Collins. He'd be the lonely guy going around the moon waiting for them to return. He noticed that when he, quote, put his spacecraft on what seemed like autopilot, it didn't stay in that particular locked-on altitude. It had like a wavy porpoising. So what they determined, Eddie, was that the surface of the moon, there's different gravity fields on the moon, which indicates that there may be some areas on the moon that have porosity or very simple Earth language, hollowness to it. But the whole moon is not hollow on the inside. Right, Frank, like one of those uh, sci-fi movies uh, that just came out, I think, a year ago, where the moon apparently had monsters inside and it was truly hollow and it ate up spacecraft. So much for science fiction. But, Eddie, you're absolutely right. There's some truth to that whole story. I always thought it was uh, made of, uh, of cheese. By the way, a couple, <laughs> more than one person has asked me, Steve, uh, because yeah. a lot of folks that uh, listen to this program also listen to your Dr. Sky Experience podcast. They mention yeah. how a couple of your more recent interviews – don't necessarily have to do with uh, space or science or even the political sphere. They have to do Mm -hmm. with musicians. I always think it's interesting Mm -hmm. when people are known for a degree of knowledge or expertise in one area, and then they have no problem kind of sharing their interests in other areas as well. How do you pick when to deviate from what people probably, you know, kind of the meat and potatoes of the Dr. Sky experience and uh, deviate into something that... uh, might not be what people are expecting. Well, thank you for asking. It's interesting because all the time I've been doing shows, we would always mix it up a lot. Just like, you know, here, Music Radio 77, you know, Talk Radio 77, WABC, is great talk during the day part, let's say, and the night part that we're on here, but also music. So I've always been interested in this, and I always think it's great to lighten things up too because I've always been fascinated by you know, the rock and roll bands, we've had great experiences with Hollywood movie stars and things like that. But I try to get their experience on there, calling it the Dr. Sky experience, to let them tell their stories. And so many of them, I find out, are fascinated by these subjects that we talk about right now, like the great Carol Channing. Spent a lot of time with her in interviews, talking about her experiences, about the world of UFOs, let's say, and her other beliefs. And another great one was uh, Shirley MacLaine. I mean, we spent a lot of time with her and boy, she also has a whole series of, uh, you know, stories that she shares about it. But I just love that. And just recently, to make it very brief here, we talk about we just had a concert here. We attend a lot of the concerts. And we also mentioned the concerts that people can hear around the country. We had the uh, Australian Pink Floyd Band, and we had to interview the lead singer of that band. Frank, I've never seen a more, you know, I never saw the original Pink Floyd in concert. 
But my goodness, that show, the people were jumping out of their seats, you know, after every song there was a standing ovation. That was a true journey beyond uh, sight and sound. So we like to mix it up. You know, we talk about American exceptionalism. I was military. I did some law enforcement. So we try to bring the best of astronomy, space, aviation, weather, and all that, and just hope the audience appreciates it. Well, I think that's absolutely terrific. We'll continue with your questions in a minute. If you want to jump on board with a question for Dr. Sky, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222, four open lines. And uh, there is a story right in my backyard out of New Jersey that is so fascinating and deals with a sound that's being heard in the universe that a lot of people didn't expect to hear. We're going to get to it. Believe me, you're going to want to listen to this. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Dr. Sky is here. We call this the infinite side of midnight every two weeks, as we will in a moment. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It is only a paper moon sailing over a cardboard sea. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me Yes, it's only a canvas sky hanging over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me Without your love, it's a honky-tonk parade Without your love It's a melody played In a penny arcade It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in The great me. Frank Sinatra This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, you can join our Facebook group. Just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Someone that we have as a regular contributor, very lucky, very grateful that he has agreed to do so, is Steve Cates, better known in many radio circles as Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer. He educates while he entertains, and his area of expertise is anything that has to do with the sky. Steve, uh, there was a fascinating article that I I feel like I'd heard about before, but until I read it in the New York Times this week, I don't know that I was really necessarily up on, and it has to do with a discovery that was made in the state of New Jersey in May of 1964 by two young radio astronomers. I thought it was a really interesting story, and uh, I was hoping you could uh, enlighten us a bit more about it. Well, this is interesting, Frank. Just right outside the environs of the New York City area, we go to Holmdel, New Jersey. We go to Bell Laboratories. 
And we find these two physicists at the time, radio astronomers, Dr. Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, they're sitting in this little hut, so to speak, with this really strange-looking antenna. It looked like a giant horn, 20 feet long. And what were they doing there? They were searching for signals from the Milky Way. So lo and behold, they find something, and they actually, this wasn't just something that happened overnight. They kept hearing this hissing sound that was in the background that didn't go away. So to make this more believable to everybody out there, for those of you that are old enough like myself, you remember the old days of television, when stations would sign off at the night, you know, they'd have the American flag and, you know, they'd play the national anthem. Well, when you went and skipped between channels, everybody's seen this. It's like what you look at white noise, like in the movie Poltergeist, you got to see that static that's coming through. This is what they discovered, Frank. This is interesting. They actually identified something we now call the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's a lot of words. So here's what happened. When the universe seethed and became what it is today, it started off, and I like to not split hairs, but I say the universe began as people simply called the Big Bang. I call it the simple, you know, big explosion or expansion. Well, either way, 13.77 billion years ago, the universe, just a little tiny thing, maybe in a trillionth of a second, you could have held the whole universe in your hand the size of a grapefruit. But be careful what you hold because it expanded so fast. And about 380,000 years after that expansion, hydrogen started to form. But at the same time, the universe went through something that we're not going through with our pocketbook, the same name. It's called inflation, but not the kind that we go when we find the price of eggs to be tripled or what have you. It's cosmic inflation. But to make it simple, the universe had this seething, kind of a, a searing of the universe. This is what you see if you go between those channels, if you still have the ability to see that static. They detected this. And then what happened is the universe actually cooled down. So it's kind of like this telltale remnant of the expansion of the universe. But right now, the measurement of the temperature of this is there. This is really bizarre. Nothing in the world can get colder than absolute zero. What the heck is that? So if somebody ever tells you, boy, it's really cold out here, and you're standing out in the snowstorm, and it goes, wow, it's like 500 degrees, 500 below zero Fahrenheit. It's impossible. The lowest temperature that we can measure in the physics world is minus 459.67 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. The universe, Frank, that whole thing that they discovered, you know look at this, its temperature is only 2.725 degrees above absolute zero. So they discovered it. So why is this important? They shared the 1978 Nobel Prize in physics for this. And it's totally an amazing discovery because it actually wow. proves that the universe expanded. It's a telltale remnant of that expansion. And those two scientists, that, that's really quite amazing. But even more interesting, I think the article goes on, if I'm right, that they may look, the, the city there may look at what, making this a park, and they should. That's right. Me, me too. Honor these individuals. You bet. And people should see it because that's another great you know, re, you know, relic of the great history of the state of New Jersey. And of science, so let's bring it on. That's yeah, awesome. I'm uh, I'm planning to make a a trip there, a pilgrimage, because uh, I think it's so interesting. Sure. 800-848-9222. Ed is in St. James. Hello, Ed. Hey, hello. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask Dr. Skye, could you explain for me and for the audience what the definition of a, um, a collapsed star and a black hole would be? Thank you, sir. Okay. No, here we go. Very interesting question. Thank you. Let's start off with a collapsed star, which is kind of synonymous. But in the star's evolution, 
this is what basically happens. When they run out of certain types of fuels, when the sun burns itself out of using hydrogen to helium, it's going to start looking to fuse, as we call fusion, heavier material, heavier elements. And when that runs out, stars can collapse. Let's say that particular star happened to be one that just absolutely collapses into what we call a black hole. Now, what is this? Is it theoretical? It used to be theoretical, Ed, that we didn't even believe that this really could exist. But we found evidence that they do exist. What are they? There's areas in space in which it has three different areas, let's say. You have an event horizon. You have something called an accretion disk. And this thing just literally pulls in every form of electromagnetic energy, light, heat, everything, including you and I, if we were to get too close to it. So we really don't understand the mechanism of, of what happens beyond the black hole. Where does all that material go? So some astronomers hypothesize that that's a bridge in time, space, and travel. So some say that this thing becomes, after a black hole, it pulls in all this energy, that it could transform itself into something called a white hole, which transforms energy across the universe. But simply, a black hole is something that could be, in more likelihood, created after certain types of stars collapse, where nothing can escape it. And it's one of the most bizarre things. Stephen Hawking spent his whole life at trying to understand this. And people believed at one time that black holes were so finite that they could never leak. Well, Stephen Hawking said that black holes have hair. I know this sounds nutty. Not hair like you and I have, but hair that they actually leak in the form of what looked like hair, that black holes can pop in and out of the universe isn't that fascinating? Ed? So I hope that answers at least the general part of collapsed stars and black holes. Steve, the uh, another issue that has been getting a great deal of attention is what Avi Loeb has been up to. And Avi Loeb w- made quite a splash among his Harvard colleagues by claiming mm-hmm. that that comet Amuamua might have actually been some sort of a extraterrestrial probe or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Now he believes that he's uh, found something on the ocean floor that may be similarly spectacular. What do we know about uh, what this latest Avi Loeb discovery is? Well, he's an interesting astrophysicist, and he's in the news quite a lot. And let's go back to Oumuamua. A good friend of ours, Dr. Robert Weyrich, out in Hawaii, he discovered this back in 2017, and we had him as a guest going into the details. So what they thought, or they still might think, that this looked like you know, the Millennium Falcon. It was this large chunk of either ice or maybe, who knows, maybe even an terrest- extraterrestrial spacecraft. We know it came from an extraterrestrial origin, not from the solar system, because as it was escaping the solar system, it was actually accelerating much faster than what we consider to be comets or asteroids themselves. So now we transition to the story of Dr. Avi Loeb. He's, he's looking on the concept that, looking at the concept that not only Oumuamua, but a comet called Borisov was also another extraterrestrial comet. He claims that on January 8, 2014, some object like a meteor crashed into the, into the ocean off of New Guinea. And he said that because of the extra speed of this object, let's go and search for it with a search party and try to dig up whatever might be under the water. So they call it IM-1, Interstellar Meteor 1. And what they've done is, this is where the controversy is. I think there's a white paper that he's putting out, or I don't know for sure, about why he truly believes this is extraterrestrial. What do they find? These little metal spherules, like little round little pieces of, I don't know, they look like molten like lead or something. Remember when you'd solder something, a little, but larger than that, you know, maybe a few millimeters in diameter. 
He claims that upon analysis, that this obviously seems to be material that, well, it's part of the universe. You know, it could be iron, it could be whatever. But because of the velocity of that object that came in, he believes that this is something from a extra solar. In other words, it's not part of the solar system. And if that's true, I give him credit. But more information, I think, is forthcoming. To his side and to his credit, the Space Force has actually confirmed that this object came in at some 45 kilometers per second. So Space Force says that this object, they're confident that it's 99.9% likelihood that it's not from the solar system, but it's of a extra, who knows, extra solar. That's fascinating because maybe the theory goes that it's part of a alien craft, like some think that Oumuamua is. Yeah, very interesting. 800-848-9222. Bruce is listening on WCBM in Maryland. Hello, Bruce. Hi, how you doing? I'm Bruce from Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, I want to ask you about... How you doing? Yeah, good morning. I wanted to ask you about the, um, you know, the the heat waves. You know, the, you got these people, politics, talking about, what is it? You know, the heat waves that are going on, it's all, do, you know, it's all, some of them are saying, is, has any, does it have anything that, I got a two-part question. Does it have anything to do with the moon or these heat waves? And is it going to get, we're going to get, I mean, we get snow here and there from in Maryland and, Well, probably not, Bruce. I mean, I I don't think it has much to do with the moon. I think tides, like we said before, those things we have to watch, and we know about those because the the folks down in Florida, you know, they experience an extra perigean, what they call a perigean tide, and the moon was very close. But it's quite interesting that, you know, that you bring these subjects up. Uh, As far as this goes into space and stuff like that, I don't think that it really has, you know, the moon really doesn't have anything to do with this. I think the answer that I could give you you know, from the world of, you know, space meteorology, is that all weather comes from the sun. Frank and I talk about this all the time, Bruce. So what's happened over this course of the summer, large, big, high-pressure systems have been trapped because the big jet stream has been changed in its direction. We don't know why. I mean, the fans of global global warming might say that's the main cause, but I think it still needs to be investigated. So the moon doesn't do much of anything to change the temperature. It does to the tides. But that is interesting. We're still confused. Nobody really knows why this whole thing is happening as far as these heat bubbles. And guess where I am, Bruce? I'm in Phoenix. I call it, not to be funny, the epicenter of hell. Uh, We're a little tired of triple digits. And not to be crazy, Frank, but the highest temperature I experienced here this summer was 122 degrees, according to my car thermometer. But outside, it felt even more. And some of the things in my car when I went shopping, I was not, you know, smart enough and quick enough to get them into the house. They literally melted. And when you have a thing of Swiss cheese that sliced, what did it turn into, Frank? A big blob of Swiss cheese. Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> what a waste of cheese. I hate to hear that. But a good, a good question there, Bruce. Absol- absolutely. Hey, um, it was not long ago yeah. that any discussion of UAPs or UFOs was – Instantly something that would have you labeled a crackpot. But the last Mm -hmm. few years since that front page New York Times story, since these whistleblowers have come before Congress, people, including at serious government agencies like NASA, 
they have started to view the UAP issue more credibly and treat it more credibly. Now, the Department of Defense has launched a new UAP website. What is this? What's the purpose of this website? Is this a debunking website? Is this uh, an informational website? Is it a little bit of both? What's this website all about? Well, I think, Frank, it's small steps, but I hope, you know, I'm not naive, and, and, and the listeners out there are not naive, and certainly you're not. After this congressional hearing that we had on July 25th, you know, David Grush has so many interesting things to talk about. I found him to be the most fascinating, and the other gentlemen, of course, the other two are also, you know, very competent. But what this website, I think, is, it's maybe showing us, if we're not naive, that we're trying to get a clearinghouse centered because one of the other you know, gentlemen that testified, he said, we need a central clearinghouse for this. So basically what they're going to be doing is something that's really been done a long time ago. It's just that the government wants to be able to do this. There was a gentleman named Peter Davenport, who we know from his you know, great work on the UFO reporting center. But now the government's trying to get involved in this. And I don't know where it's headed. I mean, I want to be a skeptic and negative here, especially in the early morning hours. But I still think we have to find out, or will we ever find out, what they had in those skiffs when Grush told the other congressional members some things that he couldn't tell us. That's the stuff we want to know. But simply, Frank, what it is, it's a way for people to report their sightings. But here's the simple way I'd love to work on this. These programs that we're doing, thank you so much, and John Katsimatidis and the entire staff for even putting this kind of information out. Because our goal here is to educate and open our minds, but even more specifically, it's to help us identify what's really in the sky, like the roadmap of the heavens, so that when we see something, we don't think Venus is a UFO, not that people, you know, we have to do this by learning. Hopefully, we'll be able to identify things that say, well, that wasn't Venus because I know Venus is there. So what are these other strange things that are people seeing? I think that's what the government's trying to do, at least compile information, but hopefully we'll get more answers. 800-848-9222. Dave in Lockport has been patiently holding. Hello, Dave. Yeah, how you doing there, Steve? Hey, good morning, my friend. Yeah. Right on the uh, Lake Ontario there. How's it going? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've spoken to you before. Uh, yes, sir. A couple, one observation and a question. Uh, the observation is I've listened to you on my local radio station, WLBL. Okay. And when I call you, there's a time difference between online and the phone line and the station. Okay. Hmm. But that's, that's neither here nor there. I, I understand time okay. delay. But mm-hmm. did you ever, uh, I, I called you a week or two ago. Did you ever get a, an opportunity to read the, the book or the, the short story Nerves by Lester Del Rey? No, I haven't. And forgive me if, we're, if that was my homework, because if you want to send something to us, we'd be more than happy. To, I'll, I'll follow up with you. But no, I have not at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know how to send it to you because I'm, I'm like technically impaired. I'm well, like OK, well, then. All right. We'll, we'll get a hold well, of it for him, uh, Dave. Yeah, I appreciate we'll, the recommendation. Yeah, I'd be happy to read it. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy, I'd, Dave, I'd, of course. I really enjoy that, that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate the recommendation as always. Hey, um, Roger is in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yes. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Sky, uh, several months ago, se- several months ago, you made a comment to the effect that an asteroid about the size of an aircraft carrier hitting the Earth would be mm-hmm. devastating to the Earth. And my question is, 
considering it would be, it would be relatively small, what devastation could it possibly do to the Earth? Well, that's an interesting question, Roger. Let's take the one that we know a couple of times it's happened in history, two times in the Earth's history, maybe more, but going back 65 million years ago, an object that was probably about five kilometers, I'm going on the high side, hit the Earth. Now, the object that you were talking about before would be the size of an aircraft carrier, which is about 1,000 feet. If the object that did hit the Earth, which it did 65 million years ago, it not only leveled what life was on the Earth, it sent all the material that was down here in the lower part of the Earth way up out into the outer space area, blanketed the Earth, as many people know, with this dark cloud, killed off vegetation. But it's something the size of 1,000 feet across. Let's say it slammed into your local city or mine. That would be the most horrific event we've probably ever experienced because a thousand foot asteroid would just do so many, you know, so much damage. It's an obvious understatement of the year. But there's actually a calculator in, and there was a Dr. Jay Malosh. This is interesting. A Dr. Jay Malosh at the University of Arizona. If you just look up this guy's name, Dr. Jay Malosh actually has an impact calculator. And what's that? So he talks about size of an object that it were to strike a certain area, if you put it on the Earth, he shows you in great detail, at least mathematically or no numerically, how much damage that would do. But you got to remember, once it hits the Earth, that's the main impact area. It's the after effect of that, the firestorm, the material pulled up from the Earth, a giant suction cup that pulls everything out of the atmosphere. The truth of the matter is, these are things that are so devastating. Let's pray to good God in heaven that we're not in the path of anything like that. But even the one that was 66 feet across, Roger, that was the Chelyabinsk object in 2013 over Russia, that object sent hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people to the hospital because of the airburst shockwave. It wasn't the impact. That's another factor you have to consider. These things are devastating. And that was only 66 feet across. Great stuff to talk about, Roger. Thank Thanks. you, Roger. We're going to continue with Dr. Sky in a moment, and we're going to tell you what's worth taking out the binoculars for, or what you might even be worth, what you might even be able to check out with the naked eye in the next coming days, weeks, and months. Steve Cates is my guest. We're going to get to as many of your questions as we can, 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight, as this program is every two weeks straight ahead. Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fires and the liars, they all know it's just a 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. In addition to being a very apropos song, given some of the subjects we're talking about, this is a terrific song by Smash Mouth, where, where unfortunately the former lead singer Steve Harwell uh, passed away this week at the age of 56. Far too early at any age uh, for anybody, but uh, especially somebody with this degree of talent. My guest is Steve Cates. He is uh, better known in radio circles as Dr. Sky. If you like what you've heard this hour, you can actually check out the Dr. Sky experience on any podcast app. And uh, you can get quite an education. I know I certainly have. All right, Steve, uh, let's uh, let's give folks the live sky update. What can people see and when can they see it? Well, welcome to September skies. Let's go with the moon after the beautiful supermoon, the blue supermoon. We find the moon goes to last quarter. I mean, it rises around midnight. The moon for many listeners like now live across the nation that you're broadcasting to you may see that it'll move to last quarter on the 6th. It goes to new moon, a great time when the moon's, you know, invisible because faint sky objects come. But also, Frank, the last of the beautiful full supermoons is going to take place in September. On the 29th, we get probably one of the most romantic. Hey, guys, pay attention to this one. The most romantic of the beautiful moons, a super one, is the beautiful full super harvest moon on the 29th. That's going to be spectacular. And a harvest moon is the one that's closest to the autumnal equinox. That happens on the 23rd. And for us here in Phoenix, Frank, we can't wait till the seasons change because we've had this temperature thing. We're a little tired of it, over 120 degrees here. But anyway, for planets, here we go. If you look into the early morning sky, Venus becomes brightest in the morning sky by about the 18th. So it's still there if you look, even there early this morning. Just before sunrise, that bright object you see in the eastern sky is the planet Venus. And it's going to get brighter in the evening right now. Many people hopefully have clear skies. You have Saturn in the sky and you also have a rising pretty much for us here in the West, probably higher in this other parts of the eastern part of the United States, Jupiter. That's fascinating. Look at it in binoculars. You'll do what Galileo did when he looked at the four Galilean satellites. And something interesting, there's a comet in the sky now. It needs binoculars. It's called Comet Nishimura. And for those that want to see it, it'll be an early morning object, probably by around, you could see it probably now if you have dark skies. But go to this website that we recommend, theskylive.com. How about that one? That's probably, in my opinion, one of the best sources that we use for those of all different experience levels. And guess what we get? This is something really cool. Toward the end of September, the 24th, the asteroid Bennu samples are going to return to the Earth from the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. They're going to soft land, hopefully, or land in the Utah desert. So material from an asteroid. And that asteroid, Frank, that we're talking about may, you know, give us clues to how the universe began, the solar system. But the spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, is going to be repositioned to search and go up to an asteroid that's going to be big news in 2029, the asteroid Apophis, named after the Egyptian war god, that asteroid, which is about 1,000 feet in diameter, as we were talking before, I think Roger brought it up, or Bruce, that asteroid will pass, ready for this, within the geosynchronous area, meaning it'll come within the field of geosynchronous satellites, maybe less than 22,000 miles above the Earth. So OSIRIS-REx is going to kind of spy on it and just hope that that asteroid just keeps trucking on. We don't need that one coming anywhere near us, but it will be an object to see in 2029. 
maybe bright enough in certain areas where you could watch it literally trekking across the sky in real time if you were standing outside at the right part of the uh, location on Earth. Imagine seeing that as you see it literally slowly going across your sky in the course of maybe, what, an hour or so? That's unheard of. That's amazing. Uh, let me get in Joe in Queens, who's been holding a while. Hello, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Steve. I just want to ask you about uh, the runways at airports. You've got runways on aircraft carriers. Now, I understand some of the stuff may be on the air, uh, uh, planes or helicopters on the aircraft carriers can't re-land on the aircraft carriers. Then you have runways in movies like Star Wars, and then you would have a potential mm -hmm. runway on the moon or Mars. So what would you say about runways, pros, cons, and improvements? Meaning on the moon? I'm trying to understand. Is that what you're uh, asking, just, runways just on the general, moon? general, yeah, yeah. On, you know, even on the Earth and airports now, uh, you know, starting there. Well, I think they're important, obviously, but uh, I think even more important is the safety. And, you know, that's a whole other subject. We're hearing so many of these near-air collisions that are occurring that may not be totally reported, but uh, not to scare people. Air traffic seems and travel seems to be still very safe. But having these particular uh, runway technologies improve the ability for safety of flight, you don't really need, Joe, the uh, runways on the moon because those kind of descents are straight up and down, not coming down as a gliding type of thing like aircraft do with, uh, you know, powered jet engines. All right, Steve, uh, the hour has flown by. There's a, a, a bunch of different subjects that I was hoping to bring oh, yeah, up with sure. you as well. But uh, it just never seems that there's enough time whenever we're together. Hopefully people can continue to scratch their Dr. Sky itch by checking out the Dr. Sky experience. It's always a treat, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for your time, and see you, what, September 20th. We'll be doing it. I, I'll look forward to that. The great Steve Cates. Uh, do check out the Dr. Sky experience at the Red Apple Podcast Network. In the meantime, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet firmly planted right here on the ground. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.